Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster with hosts Amy and Kevin. <laughs> and we are coming at you with no presents for Christmas. You're welcome. Uh, volume one. We'll do this again next year, right? If, if we're still alive. <laughs> yeah, if the, if the world's still turning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, literally, we are not giving any presents to each other this Christmas. <laughs> That's all. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, oh, sorry. Didn't we not talk about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, nice. Kevin. Well, I didn't get you anything. I got you a pony. I doubt it. Um, because honestly, we have everything we need. And I'm not even trying to sound cheesy at all. But like, honestly, I don't really want anything. Not even another dog? No, I'm actually good on the number of dogs we have. I'm good. I'll have to return the... All the dogs. Litter of puppies, I think. <laughs> oh, please don't. All right, I'll take them, I'll take them. All right. Did you ever get coal? Uh, I should have. But did you? I, I'm actually curious, like, if parents actually did that. My parents obviously didn't, because I, I was also a pretty good kid. Did you? I think the stuff I got was cheaper than coal. <laughs> and so maybe that is why I never got the coal. I just remember... And I could probably burn the house down with coal. I only got one present from Santa. Like, our Christmas tree was not laden with, like, presents underneath it. We only got one present from Santa. And my sister and I never really figured out, or I guess we just didn't really care. We never got presents from our parents. Like, other people, they're like, oh, yeah, I got one from Santa and then one from my mom and dad. And I was like, oh, I thought Santa was, like, kind of a step in for mom and dad during the holidays or something like I just we never got one from my parents but I did notice that Santa Claus had the same writing as my mom so one year I think I asked my dad I always said uh why does why does why is Santa Claus's handwriting exactly like mom's and he was like well he actually does his wrapping and like gift prepping here at the house and so your mom lays out supplies ready for him and I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. No, that doesn't. But anyways, it was just, uh, I was just, that was one of my favorite Knowing your Christmas. mom kind of does make sense. Yeah. She would do that. <laughs> She's so controlling. Out. She's yeah. like, Santa Claus's handwriting. I don't like it as much as mine. So I'm going to just leave this for him. Does she but... know that Santa Claus is Korean? <laughs> <laughs> um, something else I would do too is I would leave my letter for Santa, you know, the one that my parents helped me write so that they could go buy our presents, you know. 
And at like, right after we would go to bed, I would sneak back out and put a different letter out there asking for a dog. (laughs) (laughs) But like my parents never actually read the letter because I mean, Santa Claus didn't actually read the letter and my parents had already previously read it. So they would just throw that letter like in the trash, like, (laughs) because I was always, and that's when I started to be like, I don't think Santa Claus is real. Santa is kind of a dick. Because I would like secretly put out the, I want a dog one and I wouldn't get a dog on Christmas morning. And that's when I started getting really sketched out by Santa. You just find the crumpled up list in the, in the trash. Yeah. I I just. Santa just threw it away. Yeah. Santa had my mom's handwriting or either that, or my mom was doing work for him. And. I wasn't getting the dog I wanted on Christmas Day. So nonetheless, those are some of our Christmas memories. Um, <laughs> some other honorable mentions for Christmas that are uh, fairly popular for people to talk about. One is John Bonet. She was killed on December 24th or 6th. Now I'm forgetting. Darn it. Anyways, if you're interested in John Bonet, I'm not going to talk about her a lot. But True Crime Garage did like a billion part episode on her. And it's very informative. So if you are really curious about all the twists and turns of the John Bonet saga and the 50-page ransom note that is totally written by Patsy Ramsey, anyways, buckle um, up. Yeah, it's a ride. There, there is some interesting stuff though. I really went into it thinking that Burke Ramsey, the brother, did it, and I, you know, now I really, I, I don't think he did. I think that the creepy Santa Claus impersonator did. I don't know. I think everybody killed John. Everyone Bonet. dressed like Santa is a creep. Well, there's especially in this episode. Yeah, there's a spectrum of creep, just like, you know, autism or something. <laughs> and uh, and gender. And I think they all go hand in hand, actually. Anyone going to the mall in a Santa suit is no good. Red flag. Yeah. I think it was this year or maybe last year in January, Burke Ramsey actually received a $750 million settlement from CBS uh, for defamation because he was actually never even considered a suspect. And I guess their coverage of the John Bonet Ramsey case for television was very, very geared towards pointing the finger at Burke Ramsey. And I mean, he definitely looks sketchy as hell, but he was also like 11 at the time or eight. And I think he really loved his sister. I don't know. Anyways, I haven't actually re- watched any of the documentaries. I'm not as much of a John Bonet freak as a lot of other people, um, but she's very. She you, you got to mention her. Iconic. Yeah, she's iconic. She was Little Miss Christmas 1996 in Colorado. Um, another honorable mention was actually a man who played a mall Santa, who kind of recently, within the last two years, was caught in Toronto. Um, And he'll get his own episode here soon, but he killed at least eight people in Canada, um, the Toronto area, in 2010 to 2017. And he targeted gay, undocumented, and closeted men of color primarily. Now, there are people who fall outside of that, but for the most part, when you look at his victim profile, he very much targeted that group of people. And um, the reason I mention this is, like I said, he played a mall Santa for years and he actually had like a previous felony on his record and like it was never found, I guess. And they just allowed him to play the mall Santa. And his big thing was that he would hide the bodies in planters because he was a landscaper and a lot of them were at like old folks homes. So he was just allowed to be around kids and old folks a lot, which I mean, those weren't his targets, but you would think that those are fairly vulnerable populations and that they would maybe do like a better job 
background screening him, you know? Uh, some other ones that are a bummer um, are the, la- la- the Lawson family murders. Um, my favorite murder does a pretty good, you know, in-depth presentation, if you will, on them. But that happened in Germantown, North Carolina on Christmas Day in 1929. Super duper creepy, very strange. If you Google it, uh, the family portrait will come up and there's just all kinds of weird things around that. But we're not going to do that one today either. Another one of note didn't exactly happen on Christmas Day, but the house was done up for Christmas and it's the Los Feliz murder mansion on the December 6th, 1959, in a mansion that sits on top of Los Feliz Hilltop, Dr. Harold Perelson struck his wife to death with a hammer, a ball-peen hammer, severely beat his 18-year-old daughter, and she woke up, uh, her screams woke up her other two younger siblings in half the neighborhood. Um, though she likely had a skull fracture, Judy managed to escape her father and ran to the neighbors for help. Um, Harold told Debbie, who I think he did and, and eventually murder, go back to sleep, this is a nightmare, and then ended his own life by drinking a glass of acid. God damn. I know. So I think he killed two members of his family and then himself, so not everybody died. And then for the next 50 years, the mansion would remain completely untouched and uninhabited by anyone. For a long time, you could look through the windows and everything was exactly as it was the day they were murdered. That sounds like my dream house. I know a a lot of people's, but whoever bought, I think someone bought it somewhat recently and it's still not occupied and which is crazy because real estate in Los Angeles. Has there ever been like any like paranormal investigation? Oh, totally. Yeah. But they're, they're very private about, I mean, I'm not really into the paranormal thing, but I just know that people have tried to break in there. Um, there's still for, for 50 years, there was anyone wants to go break in, give me a holler. I'll go with you. You'll get in a lot of trouble. Um, there was a Christmas tree and I'll dress up like a ghost. All right, let me finish. There was a Christmas tree and neatly wrapped gifts underneath it that were never opened. Wow. And the furniture was covered in a thick layer of dust and everything was exactly the same as it was that December night. Like, I think blood splatters and all. Damn. That's yeah. super creepy. It's super creepy. And yes, it's probably haunted as fuck. That sounds awesome. All right. But then my person that I'm going to go a little deeper on. So those are just some of the mentions that a lot. Yeah, and if you search, you know, pod, the podcast directory for any of those topics or people, you can find a lot of topic or a lot of podcasts that go down rabbit holes with all of those. But for today, I wanted to focus on Bruce Pardo. And one of the reasons I have thought about him a lot is I was actually visiting my parents' home when I was living in Portland in Camarillo. I just remember the news breaking and, you know, I was only an hour away from it. And the story just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And it was the kind, and I don't watch television, like cable television. You know, I watch like streaming things and you just don't get that kind of news breaking things watching streaming television or anything. So I just remember being glued to the screen in the same way I was glued to the screen with OJ Simpson, you know, and the chase. I, I just was... I, I, I couldn't believe it. And so I, I've really done a lot of research and I think the thing that I'm mostly going to focus on is the why, why did he do it? Because everybody is like, everybody was floored by him doing this. 
But it's not like he just suddenly snapped. Well, it is pretty extreme. It is. But, like, the thing is with him that's the most interesting and not interesting in, like, a, ooh, this is so cool. But it's, like, interesting in, like, how the depravity of, the depravity of man is, like, he spent months, months planning this. Like, th- this seemingly innocuous, like, 45-year-old man who, you know, like, by all accounts, wasn't, like, the greatest guy in the world. But he wasn't like a criminal. <laughs> Not the greatest guy. But Turns like, out. It, but he didn't snap. That's the thing. Like, he was this was fucked. months. <laughs> so he must have always been fucked and was able to like hide it really well. But anyways, um, Bruce would eat his usual raspberry cheese Danish and drink a cup of coffee at Montrose Bakery and Cafe. However, on this Christmas Eve day, he ordered an extra turkey sandwich to go along with his usual order. He would need that that day sitting at his usual booth near the window he kept an eye on his dog Saki his beloved Akita tied outside on the sidewalk he shook hands with me and said quote goodbye and merry christmas to you and your family owner Henry Baeza said and I said you too and he just smiled a bit his crime started months before this day in the midst of a fairly even keeled nine-month divorce settlement The divorce was mostly triggered by the fact that he wouldn't open a joint checking account with his then wife, Sylvia Ortega Pardo. She made significantly less money than him, about a third as much, and had three kids from a previous relationship. When she started to look into his finances, she discovered that Bruce was hiding a disabled child that he had had that he had abandoned from his previous relationship. He had stopped visiting and paying out to them, but was claiming the kid on taxes as a dependent. Sylvia contacted Bruce's mother to confirm this. Although Bruce's former partner does not blame him, and she seems like, you know, godly. She's just like, she never really put the heat on Bruce, you know? Um, and she never blamed him for their son's brain damage, even though the kid did drown in, on his watch in their backyard pool while while she was out at the store. Um, Taking all of this uh, as a huge red flag, Sylvia filed for divorce only after about two years of marriage to Bruce. Okay, so that is a little bit of the background, and this is where I'm going to kind of start my timeline, trying to figure out this dude, all right? So as early as the summer before Christmas Day, so we're talking like six months here, you know? Bruce Pardo was purchasing ammunition and guns from places outside of California. He went to a gun shop in Iowa and bought 16 handgun magazines, each of which holds 18 bullets, eight more than allowed in magazines sold in California. So did he drive out there? He either drove out there or was like visiting a friend out there. I know he had a friend in Illinois who's going to become part of the story in a little bit. But I think that he, I think that he intentionally did it, whether he was already out of town for something else and picked them up, he was picking up higher ammunition magazines specifically to, to carry out this crime. I don't think he was like a gun nut before this or anything, you know, and 16 magazines. That's a lot. That's not like, oh, I think I'll just pick something up. Like he had to have started planning it then. He began ordering supplies to build a flamethrower that used racing fuel as the accelerant. And 
Um, racing fuel is about like it can stay ignited with four parts water added to it. So that means that like he he was very intentional on the kind of fire that was going to come out of this thing. He didn't want this thing to be easily extinguished, you know? Yeah, he's going Just, for the maximum kill. Yeah, and and again, like, so intentional, so planned, so far in advance. In early fall, the unemployed elect... Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into, like, his whole job thing like a lot of other storytellers do. In early fall, the unemployed electrical engineer ordered a custom-made extra-large Santa Claus suit from a seamstress named du Duot. I'm not, I'm going to say her name terribly. It's D-E-I-O-T-T-E. Duet. Doyet. Duote. This is fun. Keep going. <laughs> There's so many names I'm not going to get right. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> the suit cost $300. Oh, this part is so creepy. And if you were this costume designer, you just like, she is haunted by it. The suit cost $300 and was complete with boots, belts, uh, boots, belt, glasses, and a hat. Pardo said it was for a November 8th holiday party. He said he needed it extra large with like pockets and stuff. So he could be extra jolly. A request that chills her in retrospect. And this is a quote from her. She said, he wanted it huge, bigger than he was. Um, she later called police after hearing about the horrible incident. That's what triggered it to me because I heard it on the news that he had carried some guns inside of the costume. His plan was coming together. He had five handguns in a room at home and a DeWalt compressor, a 50-foot hose, and a tank of high-octane fuel in the backyard shed. Right after Halloween, neighbors said he put up his Christmas lights. That seems kind of early. It's not that early. After Halloween? People like start a doing month, it now, yeah. A month before Thanksgiving? Anyways. That's, that's a long time in advance. Anyways. Um, on December 18th at the Burbank Courthouse, the marriage of Bruce Pardo and Sylvia Orza. Oh, that's weird. It said Ortega before. I guess I got I got my information from a lot of different news sources, so I'm pretty sure that's not correct. It's Ortega was officially terminated. Pardo paid his ex-wife $10,000 and she kept the diamond engagement ring. And she also got the dog Saki, which... A lot of news sources say was the breaking point for him. And pro like people think that that was what pushed him forward. He got to keep the house and the cars, I believe. The Friday before Christmas, Pardo walked into a Montrose travel agency to price a plane ticket to visit his friend Irwin's family. He returned to the agency on Monday and paid $650 cash for a round trip ticket to Moline, Illinois, the closest airport to his friend's home. He would depart at 1220 on Christmas Day and return two weeks later. Now, something I was thinking about, too, if the attack happened at 1130 p.m., he does not understand LAX traffic. There's no way he would have made his 1220 departure, right? Well, maybe he was a preferred customer. He's an, well, not, I'm not even going to say he's stupid. Maybe he just had Santa's sleigh parked out front. He was going to hop he in He truly that was Santa. That's not even giving yourself an hour. Anyways, like that's, he's terrible. Get real. I mean, it's not like the worst part was that he underestimated <laughs> no, the time it takes no. to get to LAX. I, guess. I haven't gotten there yet. Right. Um, and returned two weeks later. He called his friend to say he was planning to visit. And this wasn't like out of the blue. He had visited him like months before. 
In the week before Christmas, he rented a Dodge Caliber from Budget and a silver Toyota RAV4 from Rent-A-Rec. He packed the Toyota with maps of the southwestern United States and Mexico, water, food, clothing, a can of gasoline, and both a laptop and a desktop computer. On Christmas Eve, he drove the Toyota to Glendale and parked it near the home of Nord, his ex-wife's attorney. Investigators theorize that Pardo planned to drive the Dodge to Nord's house after the Covina killings, attack Nord, Nord, and make his escape in the Toyota. Doing a few reels of coke on Christmas Eve, he walked outside of his house and waved goodbye to his neighbors who were smoking on their porch. He told them he was on his way to a Christmas party. At approximately 11.30 p.m., Bruce Jeffrey Pardo dressed in his extra-large Santa Claus suit, knocked on the door of his former in-law's house, occupied with about 25 people, with a gift wrap package in one hand and a semi-automatic handgun in the other. He also had three additional semi-automatic handguns in his possession, probably stashed in his suit. When the door opened, ugh, I can't. When the door opened, Pardo fired the handgun at the eight-year-old who was excited to see Santa. Yes, that's really fucked up. She was excited to see Santa, an eight-year-old girl, and he shot her in the face. She lived. She's pretty amazing, Um, and she's really pretty. She's 18 years old now. Um, you can look her up. I unfortunately didn't write her name down, but she's really, really easy to find. She, uh, uh, the thing that comes up a lot is she's very much um, the the walkouts that kids did in high schools like two years ago, whatever. She was very much a part of that. And she's she's very beautiful. She, it hardly she has kind of a lazy eye and that's it. Like there, yeah. I'm sure she has all kinds of trauma and stuff, but like she yeah, it really does not. Know? Yeah, it really does not look like it physically. He then fired indiscriminately at fleeing party goers. Police speculate that Pardo may have stood over and pointedly executed some of the victims using the other handguns. After the shootings, Pardo unwrapped the package. Oh, God. Everything about this is just it's stomach turning. Containing the homemade flamethrower and used it to spray racing fuel gasoline to set the home ablaze. Now, at this point, this is when plans change for him because luckily, and I guess unluckily, I don't even know how to really state that, he got it all over his arms before he ignited the flamethrower. And so he got these really gnarly burns on his arms. And as a lot of you guys know, like Santa costumes are like acrylic, you know, they're like polyester. They're, you know, they will melt to your skin if it gets hot. And so he received third degree burns all over his arms and his Santa costume was m- m- molten and molded to his skin. Didn't think that part through, did you? No, no, no. But the racing fuel did get everywhere and the house was set ablaze. Nine people died from other from either gunfire or flames and three others were wounded. The eight-year-old girl who was shot in the face was severe but lot, not, lot, bleh, non-life-threatening. A 16-year-old girl was shot and wounded in the back, and a 20-year-old woman who suffered a broken ankle jumping out of the second-floor window. There was one survivor who called the authorities during the attack. I think it was Sylvia Pardo's sister. 
um, after escaping to a neighbor's house. The resulting fire soared approximately 40 to 50 feet in the air, and it took firefighters 80, it took 80 firefighters over an hour and a half to extinguish it. Due to the intensity of the fire, the identification of the victims had been done by referencing dental and medical records. At least three victims' deaths were caused by gunshot wounds alone, while four others died from a combination of both the gunshot wounds and the fire. Um, two other deaths stemmed from the fire alone. The victims include Sylvia Ortega Pardo, which I don't even want to add the Pardo to that. Sylvia Ortega, 43, who was his ex-wife, and she was the prime target. Alicia Ortega, 70, Sylvia Pardo's mother. Joseph Ortega, 80, Sylvia Pardo's father. Charles Ortega, 49, Sylvia Pardo's brother. Sherry Ortega, Charles Ortega's wife. James Ortega, Sylvia Pardo's brother. Teresa Ortega, James Ortega's wife. Alicia Ortega Ortiz, Sylvia Pardo's sister. Michael Ortiz, Alicia Ortiz's son, who was only 17 years old. So he oh, just took out the whole family. He really, yeah. And then I don't, I'm not sure if his mom was there. I think she was his, his own mom. And he was, I guess, going to try to target his own mom because she had been sympathetic towards Sylvia during the divorce proceedings. So he was just, again, like he didn't snap. It seems like he did, but this was insanely planned. After the attack, Pardo put on his street clothes and I guess minus the molten Santa uniform or is it a uniform mm -hmm. <laughs> costume uh, that was molded to his arms um, and drove his Dodge caliber rental car to his brother's house in Silmar, about 30 miles away. It was initially believed that Pardo intended to flee to Canada by plane, which was not true because it was just Illinois. Um, Pardo had called days before to let his high school friend know that he was going to be there. And again, it wasn't like out of the blue. He had visited a couple months prior. However, due to suffering from third degree burns on his arms stemming from the blaze, he decided to go against the plan. Uh, police found $17,000 in cash cling wrapped on his legs inside of a girdle or uh, with a wig and a handcuff key with clear tape on it. His rental car had been parked one block from his brother's house, which had been rigged by remnants of his Santa suit that would ignite a flame and detonate the car with black powder if removed. So he like booby trapped the car, basically. Wow, that's... It's, yeah, just everything is so strange. Now, um, also recovered from the scene were 13 round capacity handguns that were also empty and 200 rounds of ammunition, suggesting... Um, that they had been inside the car while he was um, being treated while the uh, sorry, suggesting that what had been inside the car was being treated as a threat. A bomb squad fired an incendiary device into it, destroying and burning it at Pardo's house in Montrose. Police recovered five empty boxes for semi-automatic handguns, two shotguns and a container for high octane fuel gas. <sighs> There's so I don't even it's crazy. At 3 a.m. on Christmas morning, his brother discovered Pardo sitting on a couch, which I, he had to have come home because if he shot himself on the couch while his brother was sleeping, I feel like he would have found him sooner, right? Yeah. So he must have come home at 3 a.m. after being out, and he discovered Pardo sitting on his couch. 
A pair of Sig Sawyer 9mm were placed on a table in front of him. It was unclear at the time which gun Pardo had used to kill himself. This is the part that doesn't make any sense to me. A 911 dispatcher told Pardo's brother to remove the gun from his hand before police arrived. Yeah, I wonder if that's like a common thing. Like, because well, they think that he might still be alive and he yeah. doesn't... Oh! That's what I'm thinking. But if anyone but out that there kinda... that is maybe a 911 dispatcher, you can let Jamie. us know. <laughs> Jamie. I, I guess I, I'm assuming if if Bruce Pardo isn't dead and the gun is still in his hand, they fear that either he'll try to continue to kill himself or no, hurt somebody else cops, yeah. or shoot the cops. That's what I'm thinking. But then it also puts Bruce Pardo's brother's fingerprints on the gun as well. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, ugh, what a horrible thing to have to deal with. Um, here's the investigator's description of Pardo. He has short brown hair, blue eyes, natural teeth, and is clean shaven. He is wearing a black thermal t-shirt, black belt, black pants, green boxer style underpants, a girdle with a hard cup, black socks, and I don't know why it's called a girdle, and black shoes. That They're, sounds like a sting song. Yeah. Girdle with a hard cup. <laughs> what? I don't know. There are what appears to be remnants of a, quote, Santa, unquote, suit, and around the left ankle, remnants of red material from remaining clothing. So it must have clung there as well. That's all I got for him. I don't even know... There's not a lot of stuff that comes after it, except for a lot of traumatic stuff for the family that was left behind. Um, there's so many articles of just like this super amazing family, like recovering from probably one of the most horrendous, uh, not even probably one of the most horrendous things that anyone can go through and how they've like forgiven him and how they're moving on with love. And it just, I'm not that big. I couldn't do that, but nonetheless, you got anything for us that's a little bit lighter? Lighter, you said. Well, <laughs> that depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you believe in your case, you know? Yeah, but no, the answer to your question, no, it's not lighter. Okay. Um, so, this one takes place... Uh, Christmas 1945 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, and it changed the lives of the Sauter family forever. I got most of this info from an article um, from smithsonian.com titled The Children That Went Up in Smoke. Also, I listened to the Morbid podcast. They had a really good episode on this, and it's the second time we're mentioning them. So nice. thanks, Morbid podcast. Yeah, you guys are funny. Uh, I also went down a few rabbit holes on Reddit. So, here we go. George Sauter, born Giorgio Sodu, was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895. And I'm guessing that's somewhere in Italy. Yes, correct. Thank you. He immigrated to the U.S. with his brother in 1908 when he was 13. His older brother immediately returned to Italy and left George on his own. George, as an adult, would always be hesitant to talk about his youth and why he came to America. Maybe he had to leave Italy for some shady reasons. Which is relevant. Maybe. But 
George found work on the Pennsylvanian Railroads, basically as a grunt, carrying supplies to guys actually doing the heavy work. But pretty good for a 13-year-old that probably didn't speak any English. After a few years, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia. He got a job at a trucking company and eventually started his own trucking company, mainly hauling construction supplies, coal, and freight. Uh, he met Jenny Cipriani at her father's store, The Music Box. She came to America when she was three. Uh, they get married and have ten children between 1923 and 1943. That's right. Ten. Only nine lived in the house at the time, though. An Italian village. Mm-hmm. Um... They settle in an Appalachian town. Appalachian. Sorry. It's true. It's true. You heard it from the English teacher. Appalachian. It has nothing to do with English. It's just, it's a big thing. Backwoods English. She's got a PhD. <laughs> it's, I, I hate, it's Appalachian. All right. Fine. They settle in an Appalachian town <laughs> with a small but active Italian community. Fayetteville, West Virginia. It's Fayetteville. 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 It's the Italian way to say it. Fayetteville. They were a respected middle-class family and well-liked. George did have strong opinions, and he was pretty outspoken on everything from current events, business, and politics. He strongly disagreed with what was happening in Italy during World War II, as many people probably did. Hopefully everyone... Yeah, well... Um, Except for some, and you know, who's... he was a strong critic of fascist dictator Benito Mussolini, as probably most Americans probably also were. Uh, and he didn't hide his feelings about it, which seemed probably like... It seemed okay. The standard yeah. at the time. Um, so around 12.30 a.m. on Christmas morning, a phone call wakes up Jenny Sauter. She's the mother of the children. Um, a female voice she doesn't recognize asking for someone she doesn't know is on the other line. Uh, it sounded like the caller was at a party. She can hear glasses clinking and people laughing. Uh, she told the woman that she had the wrong number and hung up. She noticed the lights were on downstairs and the front door was unlocked. So uh, it was Christmas Eve. So she let some of the kids stay up late and open a few presents and stuff. But um, the last one up was supposed to close up the house. Uh, which apparently they didn't. Um, so she went around and locked up, turned off the lights, and returned to bed. About an hour later, she wakes <laughs> up from a loud bang on the roof, then a rolling sound. Uh, she didn't think anything about it, apparently, and went back to sleep. Just a flying squirrel. Yeah, you know. I, yeah, I... They're common in West Virginia, flying squirrels. Well, I also, I probably wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't get up either. I hear things on the roof all the time, <gasps> but, you know, just think our house is haunted. Or it's like that episode of Twilight Zone where the thing is on the wing. Oh. I love that episode. Well, if our Isn't house called... was a plane, then I might think that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that called like terror at 10,000 feet or I don't something? know, but every time I fly, I think about that episode. Oh, I it's love really that st- episode. I saw it when I was re- super young, and it's always stuck with me. It had, he had like a creepy monkey face, And that he? guy looks exactly the same, that greasy guy. The what? Isn't he the guy from Twin Peaks? 
The greasy guy? No, it was William Shatner, wasn't it? Was it was Shatner, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I got him mistaken with the greasy guy from Twin Peaks. And he was, like, freaking out, and it kept not being... Oh, I love that episode so much. Um, we should watch that. I Every single time, I've, I've gone back and listened to our podcast. We, we keep saying we're going to watch things, and then we don't watch them. We oh. need to watch, like, the Executioner song, Airplane, Alive, Twilight Zone. Well, you have two weeks off of work now. So. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. Um, so after hearing, you know, that stuff, she doesn't think much about it. She goes back to bed, uh, about an hour after that, she wakes up and the house is filled with smoke. She bails out of the house and she is joined by George, two-year-old Sylvia, 17-year-old Marion, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr. Um, they all made it outside. But Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jeannie, and Betty did not make it out, and they were never seen again. George tried to save them every way he could think of. He broke a window to gain access when the front and back doors were unpassable, uh, and in the process, he slashed open his arm. Uh, undeterred, he went to the side of the house where he always stored his ladder uh, so he can get uh, to his kids on the second floor, but the ladder was not there. Next, uh, he was going to pull up one of his trucks to the side of the house and climb up that way. But both the trucks he had there wouldn't start. Ugh. They worked perfectly the day before. That, ugh. Uh, and then... Conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, so then after that, he tried to scoop water from like a rain barrel, but the water was frozen. How and, how bummery would this be? Dude. Like literally everything you Such try. a helpless situation. Yeah. yeah. So while this was happening, George's daughter, Marion, ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Good job. Fire Department. Appalachian. Which I believe was a, a volunteer fire department. Mm -hmm. um, so no one answered the phone. It's Christmas at like one in the morning, basically. But I also think there was no one working at like the operator place where they would switch the call because it was like a it was back yeah, in the day right like there was no one like working no at the operator. fire department and there was no operator yeah so another neighbor saw the fire and tried calling from a nearby tavern but again no one answered um so this dude the the neighbor that's drinking at the bar yeah the or, guy that I guess, he wasn't drinking at a bar but he the calls. guy that what yeah, yeah okay, made gotcha. a call uh he drove to town and actually tracked down the fire chief fj morris uh morris initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, a phone tree, where one firefighter <laughs> calls the other firefighter. And that's firefighter, what they still do today. And then that firefighter calls another firefighter. And then, and then they have, like, a fun game where they talk. It's and like by, girl, it's and by, the, talk. by the end of it, like, they have to the guess first what message they're like, they're is like, completely what is different. They're like, oh, we're going to the bar. So And that's why it took them seven hours. So that's why they showed up at eight in the morning. Which seven. Was it was seven, seven hours, hours after the fire started. Because uh, they were too busy playing girl talk. Yeah. And believe it or not, at this point, the Sodder's home was reduced to a pile of smoldering ash. That's how fire works. We live in California now. We're finding that out. Shit. Uh, George and Jenny assumed five of their children died in the fire. But a brief search of the grounds turned up no bodies or remains or anything. 
Chief Morris said the fire burned hot enough to completely cremate the bodies of the solder. Untrue. Well, possibly. <laughs> but, a, I mean, it can't. So a state police inspector combed the rubble and determined the fire was caused by faulty wiring. Not true as well. Okay, that's two not trues. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the cor- <laughs> the coroner's office issued five death certificates just before New Year's. Cause of death, fire, or suffocation. Also not true. Are we up to three? Is that three? Yeah. Okay. Uh, George, uh, after that, covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial. That is true. That Okay, we got, <laughs> we got one for the true set. Um, they also planted a flower garden on the site where their house had stood. Mm. Yeah, it's really sad. This whole thing is really yeah, sad. It's a really, it's really sad because, yeah, I There's, keep going. Yeah, okay. The Sodders began putting together a series of odd events that started happening a few months earlier. Someone had showed up to the house uh, looking for hauling work. He wandered to the back of the house and he started pointing at these two separate fuse boxes. And he said, this is going to start a fire someday. George thought that was weird. He had just uh, had all the wiring at the house checked by a local power company. And everything was in perfect working order and up to code. Which for 1890, whatever, probably isn't that great. Well, this is in the 1940, like 40. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, this is World War II. It's like, yeah, just at the end of World War II. So around the same time, another man came and tried selling the family insurance. And I think this would be uh, Rosser Long was, was the guy's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, George declined Long's offer and Long became irate, saying, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children will be destroyed. Wasn't that his friend? Wasn't this guy his friend? Um, I think they knew each other. Okay. And, like, they had some real differing political views, right? Yeah. yeah apparently, because then he said, you're going to pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Nazi. And so George didn't take long threats seriously. But if someone told me they were going to burn my house down and kill my kids, they'd be a dead motherfucker. Just saying. Well, but I... I remember hearing something about that guy. Wasn't he able to get some like weird insurance payout because he took out something on him? We'll get to that. Oh, uh, okay. But yes. And that's why I was like wondering, I'm like, are, were they friends? Some of the names and the accounts of who said what and all that stuff kind of get a little jumbled, I think. But, yeah. Um, well, it's kind of an old crime. Yeah. So also what happened was... Uh, the oldest solder child, John, remembered seeing a man parked along Highway 21, intently watching his younger siblings returning from school. So this guy was just like parked out, scoping out his brothers and sisters when they like were coming home from school. Mm-hmm. Seems super sketchy. Yep. Um, Don't do that. It's creepy. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's fucking creepy. Uh, Jenny couldn't understand how five people could die in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh or anything behind, not even teeth. Uh, She began doing experiments, burning chicken bones, beef joints and pork chop bones to see how the fire consumed them. Each time she was left with a pile of charred bones. An employee at a crematorium told Jenny that after burning bodies at 2000 degrees for two hours, bones still remain. So, that was a bit of a mind fuck for her. Uh, the Sodder's home was... And for a, me. And for Amy. 
Uh, the Sodders' home was said to have burned and was destroyed in about 45 minutes. So and it was not 2,000 degrees. It seems that that would not be hot enough or long enough to fully cremate these bodies. Yep. Next, a telephone repairman told the uh, Sodders that their lines were cut and not burned in the fire. They realized that if the fire had been electrical uh, and the result of faulty wiring, in quotes, then the power should have gone out. So how do you explain the lights being on downstairs? When the fire started. And I think they also had Christmas lights outside that were, that were on. Hmm. Um, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Hmm. Then a witness came forward and explained uh, how he saw a man at the fire taking a block and tackle, which is something used for removing engines from cars and trucks, uh, away from the scene. Could that be why both of George's trucks wouldn't start. I think so. But. Although those are just tools, right? They're not. It's kind of, I think it's kind of like a, almost like a crane trolley kind of thing that lifts the whole engine block out of the car. But why would that? But you couldn't do that like super quickly. Like, so that part of the, the story yeah. doesn't. It's really just, it's just weird. There's some, at the end, there's some questions that we'll get to. But anyways. um, Is that your way of saying stop interrupting me? Yeah. Okay. Shut the hell up. <laughs> uh, one day while visiting the site, Sylvia, the youngest, found a hard rubber object in the yard. Uh, Jenny recalled the sound. I know it sounds like a sketch. <laughs> yeah. It was a dildo. Yeah. Um, a, bon a, a fiery dildo. Uh, Jenny recalled the sound of something hitting the roof and all that. Um, and George believed this to be like a napalm pineapple bomb. Mm-hmm. Is what he said, like the same kind used. Of I thought Molotov cocktail, um, which I think a pineapple bomb was more something that they shot out of a plane or like dropped out of a plane. But I think, I think I, he's talking about like a grenade or something. I think I drank one of those in Belize. <laughs> a grenade? A gr <laughs> <laughs> Maybe no, a pineapple bomb. I think we had a few of those. You did. Um, I think I just drank out a pineapple. So, people began to come forward, claiming to have seen the children. Uh, yeah. Um, one woman said she saw the children peering through the windows of a passing car while the fire was still burning. Uh, another woman at a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said she saw the kids the morning after the fire. She told police, I served them breakfast and that there was a car with Florida plates on uh, at the tourist court, too. Um, a woman at a Charleston hotel had seen photographs of the children in the newspaper and claimed to have seen four of the five kids a week after the fire. She said the children were accompanied by two men and two women, all Italian. She didn't remember the exact date. However, the entire party did re register at the hotel and stayed in one large room with several beds. Yeah. They registered around midnight, she said. Uh, she explained she tried talking with the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to let her talk to the children. One of the men said something in Italian to the group and the whole party stopped talking to her altogether. Uh, and then the group left early in the morning. Mm. In 1947, George and Jenny contacted the FBI and received a reply from the man himself, J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, that guy. Yeah, the guy that started the whole... The whole shebang. Fucking deal. Uh, Hoover told them he would help them with their case, 
but he would need permission from local authorities to get involved. And boy, have how times have changed. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, the Fayetteville police and fire departments both declined the FBI's help. Why? Why would that's stupid? Yeah, why? Dun, dun, Nothing dun. to hide. Conspiracy. Eh? Yeah. Next, the Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. Is he like K.K. Downing? <laughs> <laughs> he could have That's been his, his dad, yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, cool name. Uh, he discovered the insurance salesman uh, that threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that determined the fire was an accident, so supposedly caused by the faulty wiring. He also heard something about Fire Chief F.J. Morris from a minister. Morris claimed that there was no remains found, but apparently he confided to this priest that he discovered heart in the ashes. I think it's confessed. That's what you do with priests. Okay, well, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm not familiar. Neither am I. <clears throat> so he finds a heart in the ashes, and then he hid it in a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. Just is... Nope. That's um, not a thing. So, well, C.C. Tinsley convinced Morris to show him the spot. And so together they dug up the box and they took it directly to a funeral director who prodded it briefly and concluded it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's Real a, scientific. Like. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what he prodded it with. <laughs> hey, yo. Yep. Uh, he concluded that it was not a heart at all, but a beef liver. Uh, like the kind you'd buy at a store, and that it was never in contact with any kind of fire. <laughs> um, so, fail. Weird. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, and that was the... That was the fire chief. The one who was, like, drinking at a bar? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the Sodders began hearing rumors that the fire chief had told others that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble after the fire hoping that any remains found would placate the family enough for them to stop the investigation. Oof. So he, they just want the investigation to stop. Yeah. Because there's nothing sketchy going on. Nothing. Zero. They don't have five children. Nope. Over several years, different tips would trickle in. George saw a picture of school children in a newspaper. Uh, the picture was from a class in New York, but he was convinced that one of the kids in the picture was his daughter, Betty. And he always investigated all of the tips yeah. himself because he so desperately wanted his kids back. So sad. He drove to Manhattan and actually found where the child lived. Creepy. Yeah. A little. Uh-huh. But the parents of the kid would, weirdly enough, not let George uh, see their child and refused to speak with him. Hmm. Uh, in August 1949, the Sodders brought in a pathologist from Washington, D.C. to conduct another search of the site. His name was Oscar B. Hunter. Another cool name. Mm -hmm. Oscar B. Hunter. That's like Seymour Dicks or some shit. <laughs> Anyways, uh, they searched the site thoroughly and uncovered four human lumbar vertebrae. Hunter set the bones straight to the Smithsonian Institute for analysis. The four bones all belonged to one person. They determined the age of the person to be between 16 and 17 years old by how much fusion there was on the traverse recesses. I'm just reading this. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, really? You don't say, Kevin? Yeah. Dr. Kevin doesn't know shit. Uh, those bones, I guess, 
usually completely fuse at 22 to 23 years of age. Hmm. The bones that they had showed greater maturation. <laughs> maturation. <laughs> the bones they had showed greater maturation than the bones of a 14-year-old boy who they thought the bones belonged to. They didn't think that. They were paid to think that. Bah, bah, bah. Basically, the bones <laughs> were from someone too old to be their 14-year-old son. Also, the bones were never exposed to fire. Uh, the Smithsonian report also said it was very strange to not find the full skeletons of the five children due to the fact that the house burned for a little over a half an hour. They concluded the bones came from the dirt that George used to fill the basement for his memorial. Uh, the findings from this Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston. After these hearings, Governor Oki L. Patterson, not a cool name, Oki? Not a, not a cool dude. Uh, well, was he? Probably not. He's a governor, so oh, they're okay. all fucked. Uh, him and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett, fake name, told the Sodders that the search was hopeless, in quotes, and they promptly closed the case. So, and again, nothing sketchy Sketch. going on there. Not satisfied, the Sodders erect a billboard along Route 16. Mm -hmm. They also passed out flyers offering a cash reward for info leading to the recovery of their children. First, the offer was for $5,000, and then they soon upped the amount to $10,000, which is a lot. Yeah, back then, yeah. Even, and it's still a lot now. Yeah, and then, believe it or not, the tips started coming in. A letter came from a woman in St. Louis saying Martha, the oldest daughter, was in a convent there. They also got another tip from Texas from someone claiming to have heard an incriminating conversation about a Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone else said the children were with some distant relative of Jenny's in Florida. But they actually like questioned all the family in Florida and they didn't have the kids. Well, yeah, many yeah. stories like this came in and George traveled the country checking into each of them, but always coming home without any yeah, answers. So sad. Yeah, this whole thing is a bummer. Um, in 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny checked it, uh, she checked the mail and received an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked from Kentucky and had no return address. There was a photo inside the envelope of a mid-twenties man. On the opposite side was a handwritten note that said, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, ill, ill boys. I-L-I-L, yeah. What the hell is that? I don't know. Uh, and then it said... A nine zero one three two or one three five. I don't know what that means. No one does. Weren't they saying that might have been like some coordinates in Italy or something? Yeah, or area codes of... or something like that. Yeah. Anyways, um, it's just mysterious and strange and didn't go anywhere, right? Yeah. Well, the picture of the guy, um, the, the Sodder parents, they couldn't get over how much the man in the photo resembled their son. Uh, their son, Lewis. He was nine years old at the time of the fire, but this is 20 years later. So um, beyond the obvious similarities, like brown, curly hair and dark brown eyes, uh, he had features that their son had. And they like kind of picturing how he would, you know, look like 20 years later. They totally thought this was a dude. Same straight, strong nose, same upward tilt to his left eyebrow. They again hired a private investigator to check this out. 
and the investigator went to Kentucky and was never seen again. Hmm. So um, the Sodders didn't publish the picture or the name of the town where the picture came from in fear that it might cause harm to their son. All they did was put an updated photo on their billboard. I wonder, like, how long after that, you know, like, this thing, this guy never being heard from again is super sketchy. Mm -hmm. George gave an interview around this time saying, time is running out for us, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Fair enough. Uh, George died a year later in 1968, still hoping for some insight on what happened. Mm. Jenny had built a fence around the property after he died. Uh, she began adding rooms to the house, adding layers and layers between her and the outside world. A lot like the Winchester house. Yep. Uh, Jenny wore black exclusively every day since uh, the fire as a sign of mourning until the day she died in 1989. Mm. It's almost like a Candlemas song. Mm -hmm. uh, soon after her death, the billboard was taken down. Her children and now their children have taken up the investigation and uh, they have their own theories and suspicions about what happened. Uh, one kind of being local mafia tried to recruit George and he declined. So he went, so they went after him. Um, two, the mafia tried to export money from George and he refused. And then three is kind of the children were kidnapped by someone they knew. Someone came in through the unlocked front door told them about the fire and offered to take them somewhere safe. And maybe if they were taken somewhere and they lived for decades, maybe they didn't contact their parents because they wanted to protect them. Hmm. So those are kind of like their theories, but none of those to me make much sense. Yeah. Um, so what do I think? Who cares? <laughs> the end. Yeah. No. Um, if the children did get kidnapped, I do think it would have been by someone that they knew. The chances of five different people not contacting their family or being seen or heard from again is very small. Unless they were told that their family died in the fire and that they were the only one uh, left alive. But still, I think. Yeah, they would still probably want to They would have back. popped up somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that they probably did die in the fire. Um, most homes during this time used coal for heating and stored it in their basements. Once the fire got to the coal, it would have been like one giant Weber barbecue, hot enough to cremate the bodies. Uh, but the duration of the fire doesn't really match. Um, it's possible some of the details aren't completely accurate. Hmm. But um, of all, anytime I've like looked into the story, though, no one act. There's not one single person that thinks that they died in the fire. But again, I think it's because it's that hopeful thinking. Yeah. It's just interesting to think that, you know, like to know that you think that it is actually potentially possible. Well, like I said, I went down a few uh, rabbit holes, Reddit yeah. rabbit holes and some um, people whose opinions, if they're who they say they are, I think could be pretty accurate. But um, there's a, I actually going down some of these uh, rabbit holes. Uh, there's been cases recently that I stumbled upon um, where a person suspected of starting a fire that killed someone and were thought to have fled the scene and um, their bodies have been found by like family members and stuff after the police and fire have done their investigations. Mm -hmm. um, one case is the Freeman Bible case where um, the father was believed to have started this fire where um, I think his daughter and someone else died and they thought that he bailed and was the guy responsible. But then like 
after the investigations and stuff, I think one of the family members found him like under like a car or something like that, hmm. like his burnt remains. So this funeral director on Reddit added to this long thread and he was saying that children having less dense and developed bones do actually burn faster than adult bones. And so he thinks that they probably died in the fire. He or she. Yeah. And if there was a bunch of coal in there, it would have burned, you know, hot enough, I believe, to burn bodies. And the, and they're also their bedrooms were on the first floor closer to where the coal yeah. would have been. So also the site was bulldozed right away, too. So like any like bones or even teeth and stuff could have been just scattered and like, you know, hard to recover. Um as to who started the fire, I'd said put my money on Fiorenzo Gianutolo. Uh, he co-signed on a loan to George Sauter. Uh, he was the guy. He owned the uh, trucking company that George got his first job at in the trucking thing uh, before starting his own rival company. Mm. Um, so. John Utolo, he co-signed on a loan to George Sauter, and he was also the recipient of a $1,500 insurance policy clause on the Sauter property, which today would be about $20,000. Um, his cousin was on the coroner's jury, um, and they decided the fire was an accident from faulty wiring, which probably wasn't the case. Um, John Utolo also is said that he was the one that actually threatened George with burning his house and destroying his children and not Rosser Long, the insurance agent, but mm. many believed him made the threat. People said that Johnny Tolo and George, they didn't have like a bad repertoire, you know, but maybe something happened. I don't know. Rapport. Thank you. <laughs> I love you. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what I think though, um, the youngest surviving solder child, Sylvia, is a now probably around 76 and uh, does not believe her siblings died in the fire. She still pursues clues on websites and forums. Uh, she says her very first memories are from the night of the fire. It was really very sad, actually. Uh, she says she'll never forget the sight of her father bleeding and screaming or the terrible cacophony of everyone's screams. She's still haunted by this. And without having any of her questions of what happened that night answered. Hmm. Yeah. So that is... The mystery of the soldered children, right? It's still, like, and it's crazy how much stuff, especially, like, on Reddit and stuff, like, there still is about this. People are still talking about this whole thing. Yeah. And it's, like, what, 75 years ago. Yeah. So, in closing today's episode, there's one last crime that I would like to talk to you about. Now, it might not feel like a crime, but we assure you it is, and we are guilty of it as well. We know our shit stinks, too. It's the packaging. It's the packaging and the Amazoning and all of that horrible stuff. It's the Tickle Me Elmos, the Furbies, the Teletubbies. Those are things that are very old. Um, like seriously, You're uh, really dating yourself. I know. Uh, Clark Waller, who was a store clerk at Walmart during the Tickle Me Elmo craze of '96, which is the same year that John Bonet died. It was Tickle Me Elmo. Um, when they spotted him with the toy, he was stampeded and he was trampled and he pulled a hamstring, got injuries to his back, his jaw and knee and a broken rib and a concussion. Hope he learned his lesson. <laughs> Just don't touch anything. Um, 
There were numerous reports of trampling. I think that Tickle Me Elmo is like potentially like the biggest. It was like the. I don't think any toy has ever been that. People were manic. Yeah, I remember that. And that whatever. You you don't have to buy a ton of stuff, and you don't have to freak out and have the thing that everybody else has. And again, I know you guys know this, but it's just you know, it's just don't worry about it. And then throwing all that packaging into the garbage and dumpsters. You know, it just ends up in the ocean. Recycling is a myth. How dare you? So I ask you this holiday season to reuse gift wrap and ribbon like my crazy mother. She has a whole cupboard full of... I can give you her her email address if (laughs) you want to send send it to her in a new box. She collects newspaper bags and stuff. Yeah. Um, use, you can use brown paper bags and newspaper ads for wrapping. If you, if you do want to give gifts, I don't mean it to be a total Scrooge or better yet, give the gift of your time, spend it with your loved ones, go for a hike or to a museum, learn something. And as the great philosophers, Bill and Ted said, be excellent to each other. Also happy 50th birthday to Jamie Billig. Happy birthday, Jamie. Who probably won't listen to this. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully he does. And then he'll let me know. Join our Facebook group called The True Crime Dumpster, where we post weekly and discuss other crimes, um, as well as the ones that we discussed today. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can also email at at us. Do it. You can also, yeah. Email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. And we're currently trying to work on our website to make it better uh it is truecrimedumpster.com listen to our show where what or don't yeah fine listen to merry christmas dicks (laughs) listen to our show on apple Podcasts and podbean also we are now on stitcher and will hopefully be on google play and spotify this week because i don't have to work don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends you don't like that much. <laughs> I, I crack myself up. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. Oh, tell your friends that you do like, actually, you know? Them too. Yeah. yeah. Every, everyone. Yeah. So we do wish you a happy holiday. There's enough room in the dumpster for everyone. <laughs> we wish you a happy holiday free of crime. We'll be back in a week with some new terrible stories when other podcasters will be taking breaks to be consumer whores. <laughs> These opinions are, are not consistent with the, this, the the views and stuff of Scrooge. True crime dumpster. Yeah, is all I'm saying. I approve of this message. I, yeah, that's true it. crime dumpster approves, approves of this message. So have a safe, safe, happy holiday. Even though it sounds like I don't want you to have one, and I love you. Wow, that was strong. <laughs> Last episode, she wanted you to have a horrible day. Now she loves you. <laughs> Take it from me. I love you. Happy holidays. I think you're okay. Thanks for listening. Bye.